compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're somebody who's new, I encourage you to get out your outlines and prepare to take notes. That's sort of the way we, we do things here at Crosswinds. It is sort of a teaching learning time as we study the Word this morning. I'd like to begin, you know, um, by telling you also, uh, happy Valentine's Day. So hopefully you guys, if you're married or you have somebody special in your life, hopefully you're able to do something special for Valentine's today. Uh, but I also did want to tell you that I probably need your help. And I'm not just talking about those people who are in this room, but I'm talking about the people who are watching us online. Sometimes there's as many as 200 computers that will be connected on a Sunday. So you guys can help me. I'm not quite sure what to do for my wife on Valentine's Day. I mean, it is like negative 20 or something out there. You, know, you can't really go to restaurants too easily. Then you have COVID exposure. So I want to hear what good ideas you have. If you guys have my number, text me your ideas. A bunch of people did that after first service. If you're online, you know that comment section watching on Facebook and YouTube? Put your comments there. So I want to hear your ideas about what I should be doing with Cindy here on, on Valentine's Day. So good ideas. I'd love to hear it. Speaking of Valentine's Day, I was trying to find things to do with Cindy, and I looked online, and I've learned that people do some really crazy things for love. Uh, some of them I, I'm not even comfortable sharing with you, but there are a couple that are fun. One that I thought was interesting was this guy and this girl are dating, they're getting close, and he was one of those sort of tree-hugging, back-to-nature kind of guys, not my kind of guy, and he proposed to his wife, and she said yes, but he said, but it's only under this condition. I'm a vegan. You have to become a vegan like me. Now, people will do the most amazing things for their love. She became a vegan, and I'm thankful my wife wasn't that way, because otherwise it would have been like, you know, hamburgers or my wife. Mm, I'm not too sure. It's going to be close. You know, I, I, you know, I like my, you guys know, I like my burgers. I like my meat. But the point is that people will do some crazy things for love because the reward of love is always worth the sacrifice we make for it. At least that's what it seems to be. Today, as we continue in 2 Timothy, Paul is going to be uh, building on a very similar theme. It's the reward for following Christ is always worth the sacrifice we make. The reward for following Christ is always worth the sacrifice we make. Now, if you have your Bible, I don't care if it's a paper Bible or if it's an electronic Bible on your phone, turn to 2 Timothy. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. While you're turning, let me just take a moment to sort of orientate you to this book and what we've been learning in this book, because I know that some of you are new. Um, 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. It was the last letter he wrote. He wrote it in probably the, the worst situation and circumstances. We learned this in the first week. He was actually imprisoned in what was the Mamertine prison in Rome. Maybe a better way to describe it was the Mamertine dungeon. It was the bottom level of an earth-dug prison. It uh, was a, around a, I think it was a 16 to 20 foot wide pit, had no lights in it, no bathroom facilities in it. The only way in and out of it was a manhole-sized hole above in the air. And men were kept there before they were executed. 
Usually about 30 men were in there at a time in pitch darkness, in their own filth, with occasional food dropped down. This is where Paul was when he wrote this letter to Timothy. And why was Paul there? Well, he had been arrested for being a Christian. He'd been tried for Nero for being a Christian. He, and he was about to be, soon to be, executed for being a Christian. And he wrote this letter, 2 Timothy, to Timothy. Timothy was his protege who had worked with Paul. Paul had left Timothy in charge of the, the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a large city. It was a large church. And here was a young guy in charge of this large church. And by the way, it was difficult for him. Just so you know, uh, the First Timothy tells us many people didn't respect his leadership because he was too young. We also know from the first letter of Timothy that the church was very divided. The church had a lot of infighting in it. It was a tough church to lead for a young man. We've learned in previous weeks that it says all who are in Asia have turned away from Paul at that point. This means not all people, but all Christians. What had happened was Paul was arrested for being a Christian, and now people want to disassociate themselves from Paul because they don't want to get arrested for being a Christian. And here is Timothy, Paul's protege. So people are encouraging Timothy to leave Paul. People are giving pressure to Timothy. So Timothy has pressure in the church. He has pressure in the larger community or from the larger Christian community of all of Asia against him. And then I've told you in previous weeks, he has society-wide pressure. Uh, the, the Roman society at this point hates Christians. They're very opposed to Christians. And um, I've told you why in previous weeks, but I'll just tease that out a little more today. Uh, what had happened was the great fire of Rome, and it had been fingered on Christians. Now let me tell you about that so you can just connect with that. The great fire of Rome was lit in the July 6th. The year was 64 AD. It was lit by Nero, who's the ruler of Rome. It burned down more than half of the entire city of Rome. The city of Rome was mostly built with wood, so it went up like tinder. It lasted six days and seven nights. Historians are very clear that it was Nero himself who set the fire because his idea was if he could burn down most of the city, he could rebuild it just the way he wanted it. Historians also tell us that his soldiers were seen lighting the fires and when the fires were put out by the people, his soldiers were seen relighting those very same fires. A very evil man. As I was studying this background, I ran across a great quote by one of the ancient historians from that day named Tacitus, and he describes the people who were left after this fire. He says they were hopeless, wretched people, dispossessed of their homes because they had all been burned, and they had, many of their family members had been burned to a crisp in the fires. So you think that some politicians were overreacting uh, a few weeks ago after the Capitol was stormed. You know, they were upset. This is never going to happen again. You think they were upset? Imagine how the citizens of Rome were upset when they didn't have houses. Many of their family members had been burned alive. And then Nero said, oh, by the way, 
the people who did this were the Christians. Now you have an idea of how much hatred there was for Christians at this time. Society-wide, culture-wide. And Timothy, young Timothy, who is this pastor in this major church, is figuring, maybe this is the time I just want to keep my head down. Don't want to speak about Jesus too much. Don't want to put waves out there. Maybe I'll go on vacation for a few months and hopefully everybody forgets about me. Hopefully nobody wants to kill me. They've already taken Paul. He's in prison, in the dungeon. He's going to be executed. I'm going to be next. So I'm going to go low profile. And Paul, as he writes this letter to Timothy, is, no, Timothy, don't become a coward for Jesus. Don't run away from Jesus in the midst of this hard time. I want to strengthen you in Jesus. And remember last week he says, you need to reframe how you think of yourself. He gave Timothy three ways that he needs to think about himself. Realize that you need to think of yourself as a soldier. We are in a battle. This is not peacetime. This is wartime. Expect to be shot at. Think of yourself like an athlete. You're not just trying to get through life. You're trying to do your absolute best for Jesus in life. So you will be rewarded at the end of your days. Think of yourself like a farmer, he said last week. Remember, a farmer who does a lot of hard work in the beginning doesn't see their reward until the end. You may not see much reward for working hard for Jesus now, but you will at the end of your life. A crop of faithful Christians for the next generation. So last week, in the first seven verses of 2 Timothy, the, chapter 2, the idea was to reframe how Timothy thinks of himself. Today, as we read verses 8 through 13, what Paul wants to do is motivate Timothy, encourage Timothy to live and risk it all for Jesus, even in a society that hates Jesus, that may lead to Timothy's suffering. So, hopefully by now you found 2 Timothy chapter 2. Stand out of reverence for the Word of God, and you can follow along with your eyes in your copy of God's Word as I read verses 8 through 13, which will be the text we'll focus on this morning. Beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That ends the reading of the word. You can be seated. These verses all answer this question that I have on the top of your outline, which is this. When we are suffering, or when we face suffering or shame for telling people the good news of Jesus, 
what do we need to remember? Which is what Timothy was going to face. And there are four things we need to remember, Paul gives us in these verses, and they all fall under this answer. We need to remember that the reward for being faithful to Jesus is always greater than the sacrifice we make for being faithful to Jesus. That's our big idea today. The reward for being faithful to Jesus is always greater than the sacrifice we make for being faithful to Jesus. Now let's look at that big idea being developed in these four points. Number one, remember the identity of the Jesus we serve. That comes from verse eight. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So Paul tells Timothy, Paul tells us, if you are ever going to be bold for Jesus, if you're ever going to take a risk for Jesus, if you're ever going to be able to take a sacrifice for Jesus, you have to remember the identity of the Jesus that you are serving and that you are representing in this world. Most of us, uh, we like to avoid conflict. Most of us want people to like us. Most of us want people to admire us. And so uh, when we're at a family gathering, say we have a, we're in a family gathering where we have some relatives who don't know about Jesus, and you know in those family gatherings, the opportunity comes up, that you, the perfect moment comes up, where you're like, oh, that's the perfect way for me, or perfect time for me to explain the gospel. Perfect time for me to be able to share my testimony and how Jesus changed my life. And then we have that deliberative moment where we go back and forth. Should I say anything or shouldn't I? Because if I say something, I know what my relatives are going to say. Oh, there you go again, bringing up the religion thing. Every opportunity you get, you insert it again. And they'll make fun of us. They'll mock us. We want to be liked. We want people to admire us. So what we do is we keep our mouth shut many times. And we don't say anything. The reason we do that is because we're thinking more about ourselves than the identity of the Jesus we serve and the Jesus we represent. I was having my... Uh, personal Bible reading this week. I'm not, just, I'm not just working through the Gospel of Luke, by the way. I'm also reading through the rest of the New Testament. And uh, I ran across this as, in my reading. It's Acts chapter 20. And I want you to, to notice what Paul says. He says, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. We've the gospel of, excuse me, in the book of Acts, there's at least two times the Jews have tried to assassinate Paul. He's, they've done a lot of other things to Paul. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both, both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If people were planning assassination attempts towards you or to me because we're speaking too much about Jesus, what would we probably do? Get quiet in a hurry? I don't want to lose my life. I don't like it when people don't like me. 
I don't like when people say nasty things on social media about me. But Paul thought about that differently. He said, I did not shrink back, even in the face of death, from declaring to you the good news of Jesus Christ. You know why he didn't shrink back? Because he was thinking about the Jesus he was representing. Not his own ego, not himself, and not saving his skin. Let me see if I can give this to you in a more modern rendition. It's easier to grasp. Do any of you remember Kelly McEnany? Press Secretary, President Trump? That was a thankless job. It really was. She left at home uh, her newborn child so she could be the press secretary for President Trump during the week. And whenever you're, you went to the, the press, I mean, they hated Trump. We know that. And that means they hated her. Every opportunity they get to give her the nastiest questions, the hardest questions on social media, just tearing her down. Why would you do that job? because she remembered the identity of the person she was called to represent to the public. Not just anybody, but the President of the United States. What an honor. What a privilege. Did it involve suffering? Yes. Did it involve sacrifice? Yes, but I'll gladly make that because I am representing the President of the free world. The reward was so great, I'll be willing to take the sacrifice. Now, here's what I'd like you to think about. You and I have been given a very similar job. We've been given the privilege of being the press secretaries of Jesus Christ to represent him to the world. Is there going to be a sacrifice doing this? Are there be people who hate us for doing that? Yes, but the reward outweighs the sacrifice because we have the privilege and the honor of representing the good news of the gospel to the world that desperately needs to hear it. God could have chosen angels to deliver that message. He didn't. He chose you and me. It cannot be a higher privilege than that. Now it's, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, the Jesus we represent, you know, how, how important is that? Well, Paul teases that out a little bit. He's not just anyone. He is the one who is risen from the dead. Jesus did something that only God can do. Only God can conquer death. Only God can rise to new life. Think about this. Many people would feel privileged to serve as a press secretary to the President of the United States. You and I are privileged to be the press secretaries to somebody far greater than a president. The one who has conquered death himself. Nobody else in the history of the world has done that. Just Jesus. And that's who we represent. Far above any president. Now people have no problem representing Mary Kay to the world. No problem representing essential oils to the world. No problem representing Shackley to the world. But oftentimes we cower in fear to represent 
the great Jesus Christ to the world. And when we're doing that, it's because we've got our eyes on ourselves and forgetting who is the identity of the one we represent. To talk about the greatness of Jesus, I just think about this verse from Acts chapter 10, verse 42. It says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is a big deal, isn't He? He judges everyone at the end of history. The book of Hebrews tells us He's a big deal. He's the one who created everything that you see. God the Father willed it but Jesus is the one who actually carried it out. And you and I represent him. What an incredible privilege and honor. It also says he's the offspring of David. Now what does that mean? The offspring of David is a way of of saying in the Old Testament that an offspring of David, who is is the ultimate rightful ruler of the earth, the one who will redeem us and who will rule over us. Jesus is not just God who conquered death, but he's a human being just like you and me. And yet he conquered death. And he is the one who is the rightful ruler of the entire universe. The rightful ruler of our planet. The rightful ruler of the new creation. Sometimes people think it would be great to, you know, to work directly for President Biden. Or they think of how quickly President Biden can reshape history with executive orders that he makes. <laughs> Folks, we work directly for King Jesus. Far above any president of our country or any country. And when he gives executive orders, trust me, they really do change things. So, don't be pushed to be silenced for Jesus. We represent Jesus. When you're at work and you have the opportunity to work Jesus into the conversation and talk about the gospel message, don't cower in fear. You're the privileged representative of Jesus. When you're at school and you have that opportunity to bring Jesus into the conversation and talk about what God has done to us from Jesus, and you know after you talk about Jesus, your friends are going to make fun of you, Don't cower in fear. Speak about him anyway. You're a representative of the great God. Now, let me just key into this idea of suffering. We know that when we speak about Jesus, we will end up suffering for Jesus. Let's talk about this. It's point A on your outline. If Jesus suffered to share the gospel, we can expect to suffer when we share the gospel. The scriptures tell us this, Matthew chapter 10, 24 through 25. It says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, that's Jesus they're talking to. And by the way, Beelzebul, for those of you who want to know, it means Lord of the Flies. Sort of a nasty cut down. (laughs) If they call him that, how much more will they malign those of his household, you and me? If the world hated Jesus, expect the world is going to hate you and me because we follow him. If the world hated the gospel message shared by Jesus, expect the world will hate us when we share the gospel message as well. As representatives of Jesus, expect It's normal 
that we will face suffering for Jesus. But here's the good news. When we identify with Jesus, not just do we face suffering with Jesus, like Jesus, but we're also on the same path of Jesus. You know what Jesus' path was? He had suffering in this life, but he received glory in the next life. Jesus died in this life. He was exalted in the next life. Jesus was humiliated now, but he was crowned later. Jesus faced sorrow in this life, but he had the experience of joy in the next life. And folks, the same is true for you and me. When we act as representatives of Jesus, there will be plenty of people who hate us, plenty of people who mock us and insult us because we are identifying with Jesus. And that's the way Jesus was treated. That's the way we should expect to be treated. But we'll also be rewarded like Jesus. In this life, we should expect that we will face suffering now. But we look forward to the next life when we will be rewarded later. One thing I want to connect with you on is something called the prosperity gospel. You guys know about that one? The idea that just come to Jesus, he'll take away all your problems, he'll heal you, and he'll make you rich and healthy and wealthy. Just so you know, that's a bunch of tripe. It's a mess. Just think this through. Who is the most righteous person in the entire New Testament? Jesus. How did the health and wealth and prosperity gospel work out for him? They killed him because he was so righteous. Who's the most righteous person in the Old Testament? Job. He is known as the most righteous man on the face of the earth. How did the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel work out for him? Not too well. So when we become like Jesus, we should expect that we will end up suffering like Jesus. But there is a reward. There is a reward. It's just not in this life. It's in the next life. Jesus is rewarded in the next life. We will be rewarded in the next life. So Jesus also models for us, by the way, how to handle suffering for the gospel. I pulled this out of 1 Peter. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, notice this, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. When we represent the gospel, we represent God. Jesus is our model on how to handle the suffering we face. And here is what he did. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when you speak about Jesus, you talk about Jesus to your friends and they mock you and they call you a Bible thumper and they call you small-minded and they, all of a sudden you find that your friends don't call you anymore. They're ignoring you because they don't want to be dealing with you. Does that mean we start to insult them back? Does that mean we send them a nasty text message? Does that mean we get irritated at them? Nope. We follow the example of Jesus, which is we simply take it in stride because we expect that it would happen. Now, how could Jesus handle all this? Constant insulting, constant difficulties. 
He's supposed to absorb it and take it, and we're supposed to absorb it and take it. What do we do? The book of Hebrews tells us how we can do this. It says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy was set before Jesus? He looked at the fact that after he died and rose again, he would be at the right hand of his Father. He looked at the fact of what it would be like in the next life, not just at the suffering he faced in this life. Think about what it was like when Jesus was being crucified. How could Jesus be whipped? How could Jesus be beaten? How could he have the flesh torn off his body? How could he hang on that cross, which is the most exquisite and brutal death known to man, and not lash out and get even to those murderous thugs who were taking his life? How did he do it? He kept his eyes on the future. He kept his eyes on eternity. He kept his eyes on the fact that I may face suffering in this life, but I'm going to be glorified and rewarded for how I handle it in the next life. And folks, the same thing is true for you and me. When we are representatives of Jesus, expect we will be mocked, insulted, and rejected like Jesus. We take it in stride, but how do we keep taking it in stride? We take our eyes off this life. We put our eyes on the next life when we will be rewarded for how we handled our suffering, just like Jesus was rewarded for how he handled his suffering. So that's how we handle the difficulties that comes with being a representative of Jesus in a world that rejects him. Let's look on the second point. He says this, remember the life-changing power of the gospel message for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal but the word of God is not bound. Paul tells Timothy, and he tells us, you know, how do we handle this suffering for Jesus Christ? Remember, as I told you, that Paul is in the Mamertine prison, the Mamertine dungeon. It's filthy. It's horrid. It's a terrible place for him to be. It's where the worst criminals were actually kept. Remember, 30 men in a pit that is never cleaned. Think about how bad that is. In fact, the word here for criminal, he says, I'm chained and I'm treated as a criminal. It's a special Greek word. It's used to describe the most horrid and violent and worst of criminals. It's the same word used in Luke 23 to describe the men that hung on the left and the right of Jesus as he died. Men who were insurrectionists, men who were murderous thugs. Paul is saying, that is how I am being treated for the gospel. And he's implicitly saying, by the way, you know how Jesus was treated for the gospel? How horridly they treated him and they rejected him? You see how they're treating me for the gospel? They're treating me horridly, terribly. By the way, Timothy, your turn is next. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Take it in stride. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Not just this life or you'll never make it. 
And by the way, you and I are next to. May not be as bad for us because we live in rural Iowa. But there will face, there is suffering we will face for following Jesus. And especially when we speak up for Jesus in a world that is becoming increasingly opposed to Jesus. But remember the one we represent. The very king of the universe. Now, um, some people at this point probably say to Paul, Paul, this whole thing in the Mamertine prison, you're around 65 years old, you're with these terrible thugs, but you brought it on yourself. You should have learned to just be a little more quiet for Jesus. You know that Nero hates Christians at this point. You know that if you speak about Jesus, he's going to persecute you and try and destroy you. You should have just sort of got undercover for a while. Be quiet about Jesus for a few years. This will pass over, and then, then you can come back and talk more about Jesus at that time. And um, maybe what you could do is, you know, put gospel tracts in public toilets. That way nobody will know you were there. That's safe. And here's what Paul says. No matter what suffering I face, it will not get me to be quiet about Jesus. I will keep boldly speaking about Jesus, no matter how difficult it gets. And here's why. He says the reason is because the word of God cannot be bound. Whenever he speaks about Jesus, God uses that word when we share the gospel message to create spiritual life in people's hearts and minds. You can put him in jail. You can arrest Paul. But here's the thing. You can't put the word of God and the gospel message that I've spoken in jail. You can't limit that. You can't stop that. Every time I've spoken the gospel message, Paul says, God has used it to save a life and to change a life. And so I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not going to hide for two years. I would rather speak for those two years and pay whatever price may come rather than be silent for those two years and never see a life changed. Did any of you know about the, Rome, the catacombs in Rome? Are you familiar with them at all? In Rome, uh, they used to burn bodies when they died. They cremated them because that's the best way to, to handle a lot of bodies. And Christians in Rome sort of had a different way of handling it out of respect for the body and the fact that the very self-same bodies that we are in when they die, the scriptures say that very self-same body will be resurrected. So rather than pitching, picturing that body in the fires of hell, which would be cremation, Christians began to bury those bodies so they would sleep in the dust of the earth awaiting their day of resurrection when Christ returns. But Rome didn't have a lot of real estate above ground. So they had to figure out a way to handle these bodies, so they went underground, and they started digging the catacombs. In Rome, there are 600 underground miles of catacombs. There's between 2 to 4 million Christians buried in those catacombs. And they were buried mostly during the first 300 years of Christianity. Now these tombs, most of them are dug right into the walls. And so you'd put the body into the wall and then you'd seal it over the top. And just as we would sometimes take and on a tombstone, we would put a little message that the dead one had left behind on their tombstone. 
those who were Christians who died put a little message on their seal of their catacomb that they wanted left behind for those who would happen to see where they were buried. And there's a, a famous one where somebody wanted written on their catacomb this, this phrase, the word of God is not bound. And here's what they're saying. You can kill me. You can imprison me. But you cannot stop the power of the word of God to change lives that has been shared by me. You can kill me. You can imprison me. But you cannot stop the power of that word of God to change lives when it's been shared by me. So what matters is not how long I can preserve my life on this earth. What matters is how often I've been able to share the gospel while on this earth. Because that's what changes lives. Which is why Paul says, I don't care if they arrest me. I don't care if they imprison me. I'm still going to speak for Jesus. It's not about how long I live, but how many lives God can change through me. That's what matters. Talking about the power of the word of God and not, be, not being able to be bound reminds me of Christianity in China. In 1949, just prior to the Communist Revolution, estimates say there were around 700,000 Christians in China. Then in 1950, when the Communist Revolution began, uh, estimates are there are approximately 30 million Chinese that died in that revolution. Many of those 700,000 Chinese Christians were killed in the Communist Revolution as the Communists decided to wipe out all forms of religion except for the state itself. And for the last 70 years, that's been the stated position of the Chinese Communist Party, that what you worship is the state. And the churches that exist in China have gone underground. But how many... Chinese Christians do you think exist today? The latest estimate as of 2018 is the underground church in China has 238 million Christians in it. The word of God is not bound. Doesn't matter what the political climate is. Doesn't matter what they're doing to the Christians in China how many times they kill them, how many times they imprison them. Every time the word of God is spoken, lives are being changed, people are trusting in Christ and being born again. The word of God can't be stopped, which is why it, you have to remember that when you share it. Um, this is why the reward is worth the sacrifice. Now, let me get to the third point. Remember the significance of the task God gave. He says this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. By the way, this is going to get a little freaky for some of you, because he uses the term election here. So we're going to talk about election, and it's okay. Just We'll work this through and see how this puts things together. They're saying, Paul, why do you endure the beatings? Why do you endure the floggings, the stoning, the assassination attempts, this brutal imprisonment for Jesus? Why are you enduring all this? He says, well, it's for the sake of the elect, so they may come to Jesus. And as I said, this whole doctrine of election can be interesting, and we studied it a few weeks ago. What does it mean? It means that in eternity past, 
before the world was even created, before we existed, God had chosen to put some people together with his son. They were chosen, they were elect, before they had done anything to deserve that. And what happens is when someone who was elect in eternity past hears the good news of the gospel message, and what Jesus has done for them being presented in the present, in space, in time. The Holy Spirit takes and quickens their heart. They hear the message of the gospel as the good news of Christ as opposed to the foolishness of Christ. And they're drawn to Jesus and they're saved by Jesus in that moment. Not repulsed and pulled away from Jesus in that moment. Now, some people are probably telling Paul, so the reason you're presenting the gospel and risking your life is for the sake of the elect, those who have God has chosen to save. Paul, you're nuts. Why don't you just tell God, God, you elected them. You chose them. Why don't you save them? Why don't you take all the responsibility to changing their lives and drawing them to you? It's your problem, God, not, not my problem. And I've heard this many times. People misunderstand election. And so what they say, well, if God is the one who elects people, that means we don't have to evangelize people. We don't need to share the gospel because God is going to be the one who saves them. And that's a complete misunderstanding of how election works. Election works because it is not our, in our power or in our responsibility to change somebody's life. God elects people in eternity past, and God is the one who changes their life, so God gets all the credit when people are saved. Our responsibility is simply sharing the good news of the gospel, which is what God uses to quicken their hearts and bring them to him so they are saved. So what Paul says, the reason I'm willing to risk everything and to be beaten is not because I'm the one who saves people. It's just I have the privilege of being used as the instrument of God to present the gospel message by which he calls people to himself. What could be more privileged than that? What would you rather do with your life? Would you like to be rich? Would you like to be wealthy? Would you like to have 100,000 people follow you on Facebook? Or would you like to be somebody who is privileged to be used by God as the instrument by which the gospel message is shared? And you watch a life being changed by God's power, grace, and might when they hear it. They go from the kingdom of darkness and lostness to having a complete change in their life and their heart and being drawn to God. Just like Haley was in our baptism video, lost, elected in eternity past, but completely lost until somebody shared the gospel message. And God used that gospel message to quicken her heart and to bring about his saving purposes in her, her life. There is nothing better that you and I can do with our life than to share that good news. Now, some of you may wonder, well, what happens if I don't share the good news? Say there are people in the Spirit Lake community, 
and God has elected them from eternity past. And somehow, some way, they will come to Jesus. They need to hear the gospel message to come to Jesus. God's chosen them, but what happens if we don't share? How does God bring them to himself? I'll tell you how. He brings them to a church where they do preach the gospel. Or he raises up a church where they will preach the gospel. Folks, we have the choice. Either we will share the gospel message and God will use it to bring the elect from eternity past to salvation when we do it. But if we won't do it, he'll bring people to places that will share the good news if we won't speak. That's the option in front of us as a church. That's why we keep talking again and again that our big message is we are reaching people with Jesus Christ. If we don't speak the gospel message, God will raise up somebody else who will. Which is why we must do that. To, by the way, just, just to show you how this works in practicality, we can see this in the book of Acts. Uh, this is about Paul's time in the book of Corinth. It says this, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Well, why is he sort of afraid? Because there's a lot of people who are opposing Jesus Christ, who are giving Paul a hassle for speaking about Jesus Christ in the city of Corinth. And God says, Don't be afraid, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. It may feel like it, but I've got protection over you. By the way, I have many in this city who are my people. Many who are elect from eternity past. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. And as he shared the gospel message, those who are elect from eternity past heard it, responded to it, and were saved. So, think about this. Is there anything better you can do with your life than to boldly, courageously, and sacrificially share the good news of Jesus with people who need to hear it? You're not going to be the one who's going to change their life. God will be the one who changes their life. But he'll do it when they hear the gospel message spoken by your lips. You know what it would feel like? Imagine this. That you shared the gospel with somebody and they trusted in Jesus Christ, and you watched their life go completely changed from being lost without God to being saved with God. And the rest of your life with them, you're like, man, this is so cool. I had the privilege of telling you about Jesus, and look how God's changed your life. And not just in this life, but think about it in all eternity when they are around the throne of God in heaven, and they're basking in his glory, and they look at you and say, thank you. Thank you for being bold. Thank you for being courageous. Thank you for risking it. I know that people were making fun of you for talking about Jesus, but thank you for doing it because God used your words to change my life. The reward, folks, doesn't it always outweigh the sacrifice? The reward always does. Last point. Remember the reward God promises. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying, and what does that mean? 
at this time in church history, Christians had begun to develop uh, trustworthy sayings or creeds. These were little sayings that encapsulated the doctrine of what Christians believed. And this particular one most likely was a song because it had a little bit of a cadence to it, a little bit of a, a beat to it to make it more memorable. You can almost feel that beat when you, when you look at the words in the text. And it's about this. This is how life goes in this life and how it will determine how life goes for you in the next life. And this is pretty important when you're living in a time where the Romans hate Christians, where the Romans are killing Christians, when there's a mass defection from the gospel message because people don't want to be associated with Paul. Here's what it says. Number one, if we die with Jesus, remember, we will live with Jesus if in this present life you have to pay the ultimate cost for being faithful to Jesus and you die as a martyr, die with this in your mind, confident that when you close your eyes in this life, you will open them in the next to see the eyes of Jesus staring you in the face. What could be better than to know dying with Christ is living with Christ? Philippians chapter 1, 21 through 23 says this, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Or Acts chapter 7 verse 59. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirits. Because when I die in this life, I will be with you, Jesus, in the next. The second thing this little um, creed tells us is if we suffer like Jesus, we will reign with Jesus. Not everybody in this life will have to die for Christ. Many people in this life will have to face suffering for Christ. Statistics say that one in eight Christians on the planet right now are living in an area of high persecution where they may lose their life for Jesus, and they most certainly will be suffering for Jesus. Typically, the ones who have been the most outspoken enemies of the cross have been, has been Islamic extremists. They are happy to, to kill Christ, to kill Christians, and to torment Christians. But just so you know, the real rising um, opponents of the church actually are coming from China right now. Chinese have become very good at hacking. They've become very good at surveillance. That's why they're always trying to get into the Pentagon. You probably noticed that. But they do that to their own people. Get into their smartphones. Find out things they've written about Christ. And they've texted to other friends about Christ. And all of a sudden, Christians in China all of a sudden start disappearing. Some dying. Some ending up in labor camps. Others ending up in concentration camps away from their family. And what does this say? If we endure for Christ, or if we suffer like Christ, remember this, we are looking forward to reigning with Christ. Suffering in this life for Christ, think of the future, you'll be reigning, ruling with Christ in the next life. Remember, the reward is always better than the sacrifice. Let me give you the next one. It goes the other direction. 
if we deny Jesus, by the way, he will deny us. If under stress, if under difficulty, if under persecution, even under COVID, all of a sudden we find ourselves saying, you know, this is just too much sacrifice to follow Jesus. I'm going to walk away from Jesus. The scriptures are very clear. If we walk away from Christ, he walks away from us. Now, by the way, um, this is directly from the mouth of Jesus. This is not something that I'm making up. It actually is coming right out of Matthew chapter 10, 32 through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Be faithful to me. And just so you know, this is not talking about what's called momentary denial. This is what's talking about long-term consistent denial. Momentary denial was Peter. Remember when Jesus was... um, before the high priests and all this kind of stuff. And uh, three times Peter was asked about Jesus and he denied Jesus three times. But that night he was broken for his sin. He repented of his sin. And you get to the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus restored Peter. Peter went on to become a leader in the early church. Peter actually went on to die as as a martyr in the early church, crucified upside down so he wouldn't be crucified in the same position as Jesus. So this is not talking about momentary denial. This is talking about consistent, long-term denial. If people walk away from Jesus, he will walk away from them. Look what it says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There are two groups. First group is those who do not know God. Those who have not heard the gospel message, which is why we must share the gospel message. Because there is no other way to be saved other than Jesus Christ. But look at the second group here. Those who um, know the gospel, but have chosen not to obey the gospel. They know God, but they walked away from God. And the result is eternal destruction. Last one. Why was that a line in there, wasn't I? Apologize for that. If we are faithless to Jesus, he will remain faithful to his word. What does that mean? We may be unfaithful to our promise to Jesus Christ, but he will not be unfaithful to his promise to us, which means that if we have denied him, he will deny us. These are very strong words, scary words. Motivating words to under pressure, under difficulty, when it's costing us, do not walk away from Jesus. Stay faithful to Jesus. And guess what? We have the privilege of being richly rewarded by Jesus because the reward always, always outweighs the sacrifice. So 
Remember the identity of the one we represent. We are press secretaries of the greatest person in the universe, representing him to everyone else. Remember the power of the word of God we share. The word of God that we share is what changes lives. They may jail us, but they can't jail the word. Remember the significance of the task at hand, that we are um, sharing the good news of the gospel. We're being instrument God uses to save lives. And lastly, remember the reward that God promises to give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the overarching truth in this passage, that the reward we receive for faithfully sharing the good news of Christ always outweighs the sacrifice we encounter when we share the good news. This week, I pray that you would help us to keep that nugget of truth firmly rooted in our heart, especially when we are mocked or insulted for talking about Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.